0: Sharon, do you want to be shared on this document? Do you have your laptop? No, I don't need to say it. You mean, what, what, your questions? No, surprise me.
1: Science journalism has lost one of the greats.
2: On January 16th, our colleague Sharon Begley passed away from complications from lung cancer.
3: This week on The Read Out Loud, we're dedicating the whole show to celebrating Sharon's incredible life and career. I'm Meg Terrell.
2: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda.
3: So first, we'll look back on Sharon's life with Eric Woodman, who penned a moving obituary for STAT.
2: Next, editors Rick Burke, Gideon Gill, and Alyssa Ambrose will join us to talk about how Sharon got started at STAT and what it was like working with her.
1: And lastly, we remember Sharon through the words of our colleagues. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the chief revenue officer of STAT. There have been tremendous leaps forward in recent years in digital health but there's still a long way to go. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company dedicated to making clinical research more agile, safer, and friendlier for the people who participate. Chris, what are some of the obstacles preventing expanded use of digital biomarkers in clinical trials?
4: Thanks, Angus. Utilizing wearables and sensors for
2: vaccine and drug trials involves more than just selecting cutting edge digital tools. You need to make sure that new digital biomarkers are collecting valid, reliable, and compliant data. At Conexa, we are focused on building tools that will provide the most meaningful patient data. For more information, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com.
3: In the days since Sharon's death, there have been truly countless tributes and remembrances from people who knew her or knew her work. We're going to hear quite a bit from Sharon's friends and colleagues here at STAT, but we figured we'd start with a few words from outside our team.
1: Yeah, here's uh, Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health.
5: I was stunned and saddened to learn of the passing of veteran science writer Sharon Begley. I've known Sharon for many years. In fact, she wrote a brilliant story less than two weeks ago about our work on the use of gene editing to cure the dramatic form of premature aging called progeria. Sharon will long be remembered for making the most complex science stories both exciting and accessible, so I send heartfelt sympathies to her colleagues, her friends, and her family. And
2: here's Adam Rogers, a writer at Wired who worked with Sharon at Newsweek back in the 1990s.
4: I think that the thing that I remember, or that at least I tried to learn working with her for a few years, and then working next door to her for a few more, was to try to have some elegance and leanness in my writing, because that's what she did. I still remember her describing a comet as
5: either a dusty ice ball or an icy dust ball. And just that one
4: economical phrase captures so much scientific uncertainty and wonder at the universe. And and to be able to do that and still be unflappable and wise and gracious and friendly are uh, really remarkable qualities.
3: Stats Eric Budman wrote an obituary for Sharon, tracking her remarkable career and the indelible marks she made on everyone with whom she worked. Eric joins us now to talk about it. Eric, thanks for coming back on the podcast.
6: Thanks so much for having me, Meg.
1: So Eric, you interviewed people who worked with Sharon at every stage of her 43-year career as a journalist. What were the common threads that emerged?
6: The thing that really stuck out to me was that even though I I worked with Sharon for five and a half years I really had no idea just how much of a star she was going back decades and I think that was something that really came through is that she was totally revered at uh, Newsweek and yet you'd never know that from spending time with her you'd never know that she'd written cover story after cover story, or that whenever she did, it was quote unquote, newsstand gold.
2: So take us back to the beginnings of Sharon's career. She graduated college in 1977 and immediately took a job at Newsweek. What was the place like at the time?
6: It was a pretty macho place, as far as I can tell. The first senior editor... Uh, who was a woman, had just been hired in 1975, and that was five years after a lawsuit, which was one of the first uh, gender discrimination lawsuits in an employment setting in the U.S., and that was against Newsweek. I think it took a little while for the culture to actually become a little more egalitarian, so I don't think it was an especially easy place to come in as a... young woman researcher and actually advance. But soon Sharon actually did advance. And as soon as she did, people saw just how brilliant her writing was.
3: So Sharon's job essentially boiled down to science writer, but the scope of her work was much broader than that. How did her former colleagues describe her early days in the business?
6: So she was writing mostly about Science, and that included everything from marine archaeology to baboon sex to neuroscience. You name it, Sharon was writing about it. She wrote cover after cover about dinosaurs. But also, she was sort of the go to person whenever they had a big, important story that needed a beautiful writer. So, when Princess Diana died, Sharon was the person to write the cover story. She wrote a number of cover stories about 9-11 and a number of her colleagues brought up the uh, piece she wrote after Charles Schulz's death as well. So it really extended far beyond science.
1: So over the ensuing years, Sharon became an eminence uh, in our profession, but as you wrote in the obituary, you know, she never developed the fussiness or the ego that we often associate with people at the top of their vocation. You talked to multiple generations of writers who considered Sharon a mentor. What did they say about working with her?
6: They all talked about how kind she was, but not in a sort of goody-goody or false kind of way. I think she was really a, a straight talker. And she also, I don't think, coddled the people she worked for, but rather taught them by example. So a number of people said, oh, you know, I'd come in and I'd say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And she'd look across at me and say, no, this is what we're going to do.
2: So, Eric, uh, I'm going to commit the sin of reading your own writing back to you, and I apologize in advance, but there was a particular passage of your obituary that really stuck with me. Um, It was on the topic of Sharon's self-proclaimed academic mediocrity, and you wrote, quote, the one thing you couldn't trust Sharon about was her own ability. Maybe that's why she almost never wrote in the first person. Her self-effacement couldn't meet her standard of telling the truth. Could you expand on that a little bit for for people listening?
6: So she talks about herself as not having been especially good at physics. I sort of have my doubts because I have never seen Sharon be not good at anything. But also, she was the kind of person who wouldn't speak necessarily in staff meetings unless someone asked her to. You know, I think there are a lot of loud mouths in our business and uh, she was not one of them. She didn't like to hear herself talk.
3: Eric, you mentioned uh, that you know, one of the things about Sharon was when there was a big event, you know, her editors looked to her, a beautiful writer um, who was capable of capturing that big event. And I think you are a beautiful writer. And Rick Berg asked you to capture this this big and terribly sad event. And um, that, you know, speaks volumes. And thank you so much for being with us.
6: Thank you so much, Meg. And I wish it were under different circumstances, but thanks for having me.
7: So, Sharon, you have
1: become a little bit of a villain for the CRISPR fanboys, particularly on Twitter. It's like you're the Darth Vader of CRISPR journalism, or should I say the Darth Vader of CRISPR journalism. (sighs) So, Sharon, why are you always the bearer of bad CRISPR news?
0: Um, So, uh, apparently, um, people who um, invest in the three main CRISPR companies think that I'm off in my you know little studio apartment ordering stuff from AdGene and doing the, shout out to AdGene, and doing the experiments myself and showing that there is a problem here. So, in fact, the way journalism works is that we read the uh, studies published in reputable journals done by reputable labs, and we think it's sort of our obligation, if we're covering a topic such as CRISPR, to tell the world what is going on. And whenever people get apoplectic that I'm covering a study that suggests that CRISPR might have, you know, some problems, some safety issues, whatever whatever, I wonder, well, do you want me to just like I- ignore it and bury it under a rock? Is that better? So anyway, it's been a very weird experience.
1: That dear listener is Sharon Begley in a nutshell. I, I love that clip. You know, on reflection, the only thing that I would say now is that I probably misspoke. Sharon is not the Darth Vader of CRISPR journalism. She is the Yoda of CRISPR
2: journalism. So, joining us now are Rick Burke, Gideon Gill, and Alyssa Ambrose, who are respectively Stats Executive Editor, Managing Editor, and Director of Photography and Multimedia. Thanks for being here, everyone.
4: Thank you. Glad to be here.
7: Hearing that clip, it reminds me of when we had a Read Out Loud celebration not that long ago. And I asked the whole Read Out Loud team, who is the best Stat reporter on (laughs) Read Out Loud? And everyone paused because they didn't want to offend their colleagues. But the moderators, the producers, everyone said Sharon.
3: So, Rick, take us back to the origins of STAT. How did you convince Sharon to take a chance on a company no one had ever heard of?
7: Meg, the surprising thing looking back is that I didn't have to cajole and wheedle Sharon to come to STAT. I don't even know if we were named STAT at that point when I talked to her. I reached out to her, and it was effortless. Sharon was totally game to uproot her life in New York and her husband and move to Boston for this unknown startup in June of 2015. Sharon was the first big-name reporter at STAT, and she drew a lot more people who, who thought, well, wait, if Sharon Bagley is at STAT, this must be an outfit to take seriously.
1: So, Gideon, you were Sharon's editor for her entire tenure at STAT. Tell us about that experience.
4: Honestly, Adam, I was intimidated by her at the start. Um, here was this superstar science journalist coming to STAT. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but I was a bit worried about whether I would measure up. And she just put me at ease Uh, Right off the bat, you know, there was one other thing that actually helped put me at ease with which maybe I shouldn't say this, but um, I realized that she was actually human uh, (laughs) when in her first story, uh, she actually made a very minor mistake uh, that we had to correct. And I I thought to myself, "Okay, she's just like the rest of us.
0: I I wouldn't put it past her doing that on purpose because she knew it would make us feel better.
4: (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say after that. I mean, she was just amazingly delightful to work with. Um, so kind, so generous. I mean, as an editor, you're, I'm supposed to be a teacher in a way, but she taught me way more than I ever taught her. She was such a beautiful writer. She would write with verve and voice. I remember once she was writing about gene drives, which you know are are very. It's a very complicated. Uh, molecule. And I remember her writing that they were as readily available as tea cozies on Etsy. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: Alyssa, one of your jobs here at STAT is senior producer of this podcast on which Sharon was a frequent and treasured guest, as Rick mentioned earlier. What was your experience like working with her?
0: Well, I came into set with zero, zero scientific knowledge. I came from general news. And so I feel like my first few months working with Sharon were a lot of standing at Sharon's desk and having her explain to me what CRISPR was, what amyloid plaques are, what the heck is an organoid. And she did so, so patiently and so carefully that it it often felt like Sharon was both our senior science writer, but also our senior science teacher, um, Sharon was just one of those people that even though she had every right to to do whatever she wanted and to treat you however she wanted, she always asked kindly for help. She always was super respectful of your job. She was incredibly helpful in finding, you know, getting you started on finding photos for her, for working with us on data visualizations for her stories, for being on the podcast. She always just did so with a smile and with the understanding that, she wanted to make our jobs as easy as they could be.
4: She also had this way of walking up on you without knowing <laughs> she was there. I, I would watch her get in hundreds of
7: times, stand patiently behind you, and you didn't know she was there. And it took you forever to <laughs> yeah. notice her, never, and she would never she interrupt. Just, but all of a sudden I would
4: turn over my. I just. I would have this sort of feeling there was something there. And I would turn around, and it was Sharon in her pink shawl. And I found myself the last few days sitting here at my desk at home and sort of turning over my left shoulder and expecting to see her. Mm -hmm. And and the
7: other thing is I have never in my life worked with as all-around gifted a reporter as Sharon Bagley. I used to tease her that she was... the Meryl Streep of American journalism. And I don't I don't know if she liked that or not, <laughs> but she made it seem so effortless and such ease and such range. And as you're all describing, it wasn't only her journalistic talent, but it was just her interactions. Nothing was difficult with her. She was just breezed through, or it, it, might, it might've been difficult for her. She worked really hard, but she made it seem so easy. And for for someone like me who was, was also intimidated by her knowledge, I would throw like dumb ideas at her and she would make me feel like, you know, I knew what I was talking about. And she was one of those rare reporters that never uh, sneered at least to my face at an assignment, but she would walk quietly away and make it and, and execute it, but execute it 20 times better than I ever imagined. And that's a real gift.
4: Yeah, I remember her. She very often would say, I'll sleep on it when you would offer an idea, (laughs) which for most reporters would mean, I hope you forget about it by tomorrow morning, but not with her.
7: (laughs) Yeah. Are you are you hearing that, Adam? Like next time I ask you something, (laughs) Adam, you should say, let me sleep on it, Rick. Good idea.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I but I would be hoping that you'd forget about it and not not like Sharon who would who would be using that time to formulate this right. incredible plan to to write this amazing story.
4: And yeah, and more often than not, by like eleven A. M. the next day, she would be creeping up on me and say <laughs> I sent you the story.
1: I was just saying, I think, Rick, you can speak to this. I mean, I think that some of the biggest moments in stat journalism, and if you think about Sharon's participation in her hand in in some of these big stories, I mean, there was a reason why we turned to her for some of these huge stories.
7: Yeah, I remember one one of her, I think it was a story that ran, I think the first week of stat when we were all gathered. Uh, in the summer, and I said, Sharon, for your first big story, Sharon, who's the most important scientist in the world that you want to write about? And that's when she did the big CRISPR-Fung story that was like a classic story that uh, no one else had done. Um, when we gathered to, you know, years later to, to say, let let's do the definitive story that no one else has done on Alzheimer's, Sharon, what is that? And she said, "Well, there's, you know, there's talk of a cabal among scientists and academics and researchers about why we're nowhere near a cure for Alzheimer's." And she went and spent months proving that point and writing a story that was really an impactful story. We could go on and on, but the the other thing that shouldn't get lost here is Sharon's stories in the first half of 2020 about um, COVID and the pandemic. You read those stories and they are among the most prescient stories in American journalism that you would see about what happened, where we were headed, what she had trademark stories on, what the scenarios were for the pandemic. Remarkable, remarkable, ahead of the curve journalism that really um, contributed greatly to the public's knowledge of what was happening with COVID.
2: One of the other things that stands out to me thinking about sort of the the Sharon Greatest Hits compilation um, journalistically is that, you know, beyond her sort of impeccable skills as a reporter and beyond, you know, we've talked a lot about her incredible gifts as a writer and and her her ability to put words together. Sharon had a sense of moral clarity that I think, um, you know, maybe we haven't totally underlined yet. You know, I think of, you know, Rick, you mentioned her reporting uh, on Alzheimer's, there was a righteous indignation underlying that—that that the you know missteps and and some of the foolishness in Alzheimer's research had a real toll. Scientists had effectively left behind millions of patients who had this disease, and um and and are desperate for a treatment that might make a difference. And you know, likewise, her reporting on sickle cell disease and some of the medical racism that underlines the state of of that. So thinking about Sharon as a journalist, I, I think that that's another facet of what really animated her in chasing down these scoops and writing these memorable stories is that there was this strong moral component that she might not necessarily have articulated out loud, but I think is a through line throughout uh, her work over many years.
4: That is such a good point, Damien. That um, sickle cell coverage you mentioned, there was a story she wrote about the really dismal care many people with sickle cell disease, uh, most of them Black people. Uh, receive in hospitals uh, for their pain crises. And she very simply wrote this amazing sentence, the U.S. healthcare system is killing adults with sickle cell disease, period. And the wonderful thing is she could say that so authoritatively because she so thoroughly reported that story that it wasn't opinion, it was fact.
0: Sharon used to write a column called Gut Check and it would go into behind-the-scenes science and more in-depth science on these everyday topics. But the column was like a perfect name for what Sharon did in every story and in every circumstance in our office, because if you needed a gut check on anything, on your sources, on your facts, on making sure your graphics made sense, on asking her career advice or life advice, Sharon was the person to go to. And I think her her desk probably has been more worn down than others because of all of us sitting there asking her for these gut checks all the time. Um, and that was super apparent in her own reporting, and I think is reflected in any story any of us have done over the years. And I think that might be the thing beyond just hearing her voice and seeing her face that we're going to miss at STAT.
2: The other thing I was going to say, just as as Sharon's reader, that I really admired and that I think is is unfortunately rare in journalism, is the clarity she had about like how the world works. Um, You know, if you read Sharon's science reporting, it's very clear science is not magic. It's just a bunch of people. And people quite often happen to be problematic in various ways. And so if you're Sharon's reader, you know, Eric Lander is just a guy. George Church (laughs) is just a guy. She didn't sort of got up her subjects or kind of muddy the waters of like the process of biology such that it seemed distant. She approached writing about science the way one might approach writing about auto mechanics. It is a process and she elucidated it for us. And it's often very complicated as, as auto mechanics often is. But it's also just the same office politics apply in the lab that changes the world as they do, you know, in any given office. And I think that's so clear in her writing. And I I, I think it's so it's so beneficial to me as a reader and, and as a writer trying to steal uh, as much as I can from her that, um, you know, the simplest explanation is often the best one because it allows you to kind of cut through the BS that people who want to convince you of something that's not true uh, quite often spin in front of you. And Sharon was just such a wonderful guide through that world.
7: The other thing is there's the response to her passing has been so um, constant and uh, the outpouring has been, it's just a reflection of how special she was to our readers. And I, I'm, I'm still getting emails from readers who did not know her, who were grateful for her work. I'm getting notes from PR people who never met her, but said she was just such a pleasure to work with for years and years and years. From everyone, from scientists to sort of readers, to everyone. The outpouring is not your normal outpouring.
4: I got an email this morning from the PR guy at Moffitt Hospital in Tampa. And for that, her last story on lung cancer among never smokers, she had arranged to interview a patient from there. And the interview was scheduled for last Thursday, by which time she was in the hospital and near death. She Still took the time on Tuesday night to send an email to this PR guy to say, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do the interview." Just what a professional to the very end.
0: How lucky were we to get five years with her?
2: Well, thanks to all three of you for for joining us today, for spending this time, and for for sharing your memories of Sharon.
7: Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs>
2: We're now joined by our colleagues Helen Branswell, Andrew Joseph, and Megan Thielking, each of whom wrote an excellent remembrance of Sharon for STAT over the weekend, and each of whom has a wealth of stories about what it was like to work with her over the years.
1: Thanks to you all for, uh, for joining us on the podcast. So Helen, let me start with you. You know, in STAT's office in Boston, your desk was about two feet away from Sharon's. So what was it like working beside her day by day?
8: Well, pretty terrific, <laughs> really. I mean, think about it. You're sitting beside somebody who knows virtually everything. Uh, all you have to do is lean over and say, you know, "Hey, get a sec," and uh, she always did. Um, she was she was a font of knowledge about so many things in science reporting. She's also a lot of fun. She had a very, very sharp wit. And um, she didn't use it a lot. You know, she, she was not unkind in any way. But she would occasionally make these observations that would just make you want to fall off your chair laughing.
2: So Drew, you and Sharon started at STAT on the exact same day. Uh, I was curious, what was your impression of her at the outset? And then of course, what was your experience over the ensuing five and a half years that you worked together?
9: I um, came to stat just like from a general news place, not a science journalism place. So I um, sheepishly admit that I did not know who she was, which um, anyone in science journalism is like knew who she was. So. Um I remember going through like sort of the bureaucratic steps with her and I just thought she was a very nice lady. Um, I didn't really realize I was in the presence of of royalty. Um, but yeah, pretty quickly I realized um just um how amazing she was, both as a journalist and of course as a person and I really unashamedly just tried to soak up as much from her as I could. I, I I bugged her with questions constantly. I asked her for like ideas about different stories or different people I should talk to for different stories if something was worth covering or not, or sort of for, like the historical legacy of things because she had such a good institutional knowledge.
1: Hey, Drew, I love the part in your remembrance when you talked about you had that, hey, Sharon moment, that memory of, you know, spinning in your chair and, and saying, hey, Sharon, and asking her a question. Because I think, I think we've all had those moments in the office, you know, or on the phone or where we've we've kind of gone to her for guidance or advice.
9: Yeah, so I hadn't seen Sharon since March. And so it feels kind of abstract because it's like I already hadn't been seeing her and now I won't see her, and I, I'm trying to figure out if I've fully absorbed that. Um, but yeah, I mean, before we started working from home, we sat back to back, and <laughs> probably you know a couple times a day, I would spin around with a "Hey, Sharon," and she would quietly stop typing and take off her glasses and spin around and just say "Yes," and was ready to answer my questions.
2: So, Megan, in, in what you wrote, um, you know, one of the things that resonated with me was that Sharon had the sharpest sense of humor and the most delightful turns of phrase, and then you know, you proceeded to quote from some of those delightful turns of phrase um, from her stories over the years. And I imagine it wasn't difficult to to find them. I don't know, what what really resonated to you the most about Sharon as a writer?
10: You know, I think a lot of people have talked about all the things we've lost in terms of Sharon as just being a really kind and wonderful and generous colleague. And Drew saying the thing about her reading the newspaper, her reading the print newspaper, I just made me think too of... Just like how wonderful and hard to describe her sort of presence and aura in the office was. It made me think of her sitting at those tall, skinny tables in the cafeteria. And she just, she's just kind of like sitting there quietly and you wouldn't, you could just walk past and I even realize she was there and she'd just be sitting there reading her newspaper. I don't know how to describe it. She just had such a presence in the newsroom.
1: Megan, that's one of my, the images of Sharon that I will always take with me. Well, I, I will always have with me is, you know, at lunchtime, you know, walking through the break room, you know, <laughs> that big middle common area in the office. And there she is sitting at a table, You know, eating her yogurt because she ate like a bird, eating some (laughs) yogurt and just thumbing, you know, like reading the New York Times, like the actual print version of the New York Times, slowly reading stories, you know, going through. She did that almost like every day. She was just doing that. And I will always remember that image of her.
8: She didn't just read it. She actually marked it up. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and left notes. Like she was bringing home that copy to Ned, her husband. And she <laughs> left notes beside stories and she put check marks beside what she'd read. I have to assume that when she got home and he had a chance to go through it, that they would then discuss things. It was a very ritualistic thing for her. Yeah.
2: I think it's important to convey the presence that she was um, as a colleague at STAT. We don't employ that many people. STAT hasn't been around for that long. The workplace culture that we enjoy, now enjoy from afar, is entirely like in Sharon's image. I I I think of her, she's not my boss, never has been, or or anything like that, but I think of her as sort of the guiding light of what we're trying to do. And and that hasn't Change now that she's gone. But I think, you know, for anyone listening to this, I think it underlines a lot of the emotion that you hear from people who worked with her, because it was more than just her byline. It was more than just her presence. She was like, in the fabric of the place that we work.
9: I mean I I totally know um what you mean and I you know Megan put this in her remembrance the idea that like we always needed her at like a story brainstorming meeting and um and uh, other people have mentioned that they just kind of felt like things were going to be okay if Sharon was like involved or, or leading the charge or something like that but I think you know Sharon kind of showed me like you don't have to be loud or voice an opinion on a lot of things to be like a, a respected newsroom leader. It kind of showed me there are different ways to to sort of earn respect. And it's really like the best way to do that. It's not necessarily being the loudest or, or talking the most. It's like it's the work that matters. But like I think it's also as people listen to this hopefully realize like, you know, we, we are definitely missing and mourning like the loss of future Sharon stories because she was so good. But we're we're missing her as a person more than like way 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 more. Um Helen, like I don't know, I always had sort of admired and and respected your and um Sharon's friendship and relationship just cuz like I look up to you both so much and I just kind of always loved that you had you were both like these esteemed science writers but sort of had these different but complementary interests, like yours is infectious diseases, hers is, was more, you know, genetics and cancer and neuroscience. And I just kind of like, loved how that worked out.
8: Well, I loved it too, because if I'd written about the same things that she was writing about, I'd never have gotten a job at STAT. I mean, she, you know, you would have always chosen Sharon Bagley first. Um, yeah, no, it was really um, a surprise and a delight to, you know, meet her and work with her and discover how much I liked her as you know I obviously admired her but I hadn't known her at all before I'd gone to stat and to you know find sort of a kindred spirit and somebody whose presence in the newsroom was so critical and so positive and she was so generous with her time. I mean, she was a terrific person to work with.
1: She really was. I mean, I feel like that, you know, there are several times or several projects that we worked on together, you know, webinars and special reports and other things where there were times where I would just get panicked, like deadlines were coming up. We had a lot of things going on. And then I would look over at Sharon and like, she'd be like, relax. We'll get it done. And, you know, or I would go into the Google Doc that we were sharing and I would just see words flowing across the screen, you know, uh, that she was working on from her desk and I was working on from my desk. And and I didn't. I realized at that point, yeah, not only will it get done, but this work that we are producing is going to be excellent um, because that's just the way that she was. You know, there was no other way to do things.
8: That's something that Drew mentioned in the, the remembrance, the lovely, lovely remembrance he wrote about Sharon. I think he said he never recalled seeing her again. Get flustered. I never saw her get flustered. It's very uncommon amongst journalists not to see somebody sort of um, losing it a bit when they are getting close to a deadline. Never ever saw anything remotely like that with Sharon.
9: Um, Megan, I guess I have a I have a question for you, if that's okay. You and I are kind of of the same generation. We're we're were younger than um, Sharon, and I I tried to talk a little bit about what I learned about being a journalist and also being a coworker from from her. So I guess I'm curious to know, like, sort of what you took away from that?
10: Sharon was just so, so generous, especially to people who were early in their careers or just starting out. I mean, every single intern that came through Stats doors, the first person that they wanted to talk to was Sharon. uh, And she always made time for people. You know, and I put this in my remembrance, but when I first started working in Staten with Sharon, I was writing the newsletter. And Sharon and Helen actually were By far, my biggest contributors, they both would just volunteer items without ever being asked. And when I stopped to think about that, it's kind of remarkable that these two people who are so prolific in their field and have so many important stories to do, were making time to write items for a morning newsletter constantly, like multiple days a week, Um, as someone learning how best to work in a newsroom and how I want to work in a newsroom and how I want newsrooms to work. Sharon was such a a guide in that regard. She really was just the absolute best model of how we all could treat each other and also just do really excellent work.
2: The last thing I was going to say, as a sort of fundamentally frivolous person, most of the time that I bothered Sharon, it was because I had something that I hoped would make her laugh or that I hoped that, uh, She could amuse me with because she was so incredibly funny. And so um, I I wanted to add that Sharon was just like a good hang, absent journalism, absent science, beyond everything that we actually do vocationally. What I'll miss the most is just hanging out. Well said, Damien. Well, Helen, Drew, Megan, thanks for coming on the show today and, and sharing all this with us.
10: Thank you. Yeah, absolutely.
9: Thanks for having us.
2: So we were fortunate to have so many other colleagues who wanted to share some memories of Sharon. So We asked them to record them in audio form, and here they
5: are now. When remembering Sharon Begley, I immediately be drawn to her brilliance. Her support
1: and her generosity, even to colleagues hundreds of miles away.
5: Her expertise at her craft, her ability to cultivate words like no other.
6: Her generosity was matched by her incredible knowledge.
5: But I don't think it can be overstated enough just how truly, genuinely kind and caring and warm she was to any person who she met.
10: I always felt safe working with Sharon.
5: She had uh, no ego,
1: none, and uh, it was especially impressive because Given her accomplishments, given the way she could write, she would have been within her rights to have an ego the, the size of the Goodyear blimp. Sharon was a class act. She had a high sense of humor and always told it like it was with no apologies.
5: She could see around corners.
1: She was kind, insightful, gracious, very smart, an unequal listener.
9: She was so generous with her time and vast expertise, and her gut checks were crucial.
1: Reading Sharon's stories in Newsweek as a kid, I think, shaped my idea of what a fun science feature reads like. If I ever had a scientific question, I knew I could go to her. I knew she would call me within 30 seconds and just provide so much support and positivity. I called her uh, when I was thinking about coming to STAT, and she realized I was worried about leaving a place I'd worked for decades. And I remember she said... Oh, I see what's going on. Look people will cry and then they'll be fine. And after that it's fantastic."
10: One time she said she whipped out her tiny ruler to measure out the diameters of the circles that I made just to make sure that they corresponded with the diameters that she'd already calculated.
5: most
6: recent Nobel Prize in Chemistry, it was jointly awarded to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. Sharon wrote a beautiful story ahead of time, in great detail, with great phrases, none better than her lead. That said, take that, U.S. legal system. And she just
1: knew what was going on in my head, and that's what made her story so good, because she knew what the reader wanted to know before the reader did. But there was no pretense of superiority, ever. These qualities not only made her an outstanding journalist, but a terrific person. She was someone you could trust.
5: That was pure Sharon.
9: I'll always remember her working away quietly at her desk, taking handwritten notes with her pink shawl on
5: and snowman mug nearby. I used to just come up with things to talk to her about because I just wanted to speak to her, to be around her, um to continue to have that warmth um, shine on me, and that is um, who she was to her core.
9: I feel so lucky to have worked with Sharon for the past five years.
5: I'll always be very grateful. I will miss her. I will miss her deeply, and I will never forget her. People like this don't come along very often, and to say the place she
1: occupied in our world is now a gaping hole is a sad understatement
5: we'll all all miss her very much.
3: Thanks to Alexander Spinelli, Ed Silverman, Hyacinth Empanado, Jason Uckman, Lev Fasher, Liz Cooney, Matt Herper, and Sarah Mupo for contributing their memories of Sharon.
2: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
3: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. And our executive producer is Rick Burke.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
2: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like. And of course, share any memories you have of Sharon Begley. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud@statnews.com. at statnews.com.
3: See you next week.
5: Sharon, that was great. Thank
2: you for making the time and for dialing in from Hong Kong.
0: Thank you. So it's um, three in the morning here.
8: Um, I am going to go to sleep.
7: Sweet dreams, Sharon.
8: Thank you. Bye, everyone.